says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we were an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And Father, we humbly ask for just the help of your Holy Spirit this morning as we continue now in our worship that as we open the word of God, you'd give us an ear to hear and a heart that's prepared to receive what your spirit wants to say to us through what your spirit has already spoken here in the word of God. So, Lord, you know what we need and what we're asking. Please bless your word and speak now to our hearts. We ask together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. You know, in the same way, once you've entered into a marriage experience and relationship with the person you love, there is never anything to be gained from allowing yourself to deceptively be pulled away to try and experience with another person. In the same manner, that's true spiritually. Once you have encountered a relationship with Jesus Christ, once you've experienced God's salvation through coming to know the Lord Jesus, it is utterly vain to turn away from the Lord to try any other approach to a spiritual life or experience. And that really is what Paul is starting to address in the beginning of this letter we're going to look at together here in the book of Galatians. The letter of Galatians, if I can, by way of introduction here as we start a new study, is believed to be very possibly Paul's earliest New Testament letter. It is a letter that is written not to one specific church, but we'll see to believers who are living in a region, the region of Galatia. So Paul's not writing per se to just one church, but to multiple churches. So this would be what is called a, a circular letter, a letter that was to be circulated around an area to multiple different churches to read and benefit from. He's writing this letter in somewhat of a corrective nature, you'll notice. And the reason for the corrective nature is to correct and, and to liberate wrong thinking that's developed in people's minds because they've been exposed to some poor teaching, to some false teaching that has been circulated among their area. And Paul wants to liberate their wrong spiritual teaching that has come from a group, particularly, we believe, referred to as the Judaizers. Now, when we talk about a group of false teachers, the Judaizers, the word Judaizer really just means to Judaize. That's the idea. The idea is to sort of influence uh, people in a manner that would be consistent 
with the teachings of Judaism and the Jewish customs in a way that subverts what is really true and authentic of the biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Judaizers were a group of people who kind of thought themselves to be more spiritual than others. And they went around not only believing, but trying to teach and influence others uh, in a way that would sort of Judaize their spiritual lives by trying to bring them into adherence and obligation to carry out the customs of Judaism. The traditions from Mosaic law and those things that pertain to the law of God, ritual and customs stemming from the Mosaic law. In fact, remember, they were the ones who even felt that the Gentile people had to first be circumcised before they could actually be saved. We saw that in Acts chapter 15 as we went through our study in Acts together recently. These were individuals who basically thought that even Gentile people, that is anyone non-Jewish, could only come into right relationship with God if they first came through Judaism, through circumcision and that religious rite, first becoming a Jew, then ultimately if they did that as a mandatory requirement, they could ultimately come into right relationship with God through Jesus. So they esteemed the importance of their particular religious system more than they did just genuine relationship with the Lord himself. And, you know, as I think about that, There are even groups today, it's fair to say, that are more concerned with people adhering to their particular religious system than they are helping people actually meet God and actually have an experience with God and be in relationship with God. There are certain religious groups that are more concerned that you observe their system even more than you know the Savior. And they actually know what it means to have relationship with Jesus. In fact, sometimes it's the system that they promote so much that keeps people from actually seeing and meeting the Savior because people are so entangled with the importance of the system and when to follow the different rites and rituals. Well, these false teachers were pulling people away from the grace of God, from faith. They were pulling people away from freedom found in relationship with Jesus Christ. And they were hindering to a great degree what it meant to just walk in the Spirit in a close relationship with the Lord, leading people to the observance of these rituals and leading them away from what it meant to just be led by the Spirit and into what we will see and often refer to as legalism. Now, when I use the term legalism, important to quantify if you've never heard it before or just to refresh your memory if you have, legalism is basically emphasizing the need to observe certain requirements or restrictions in order to be spiritual or to be holy or to be righteous. That's the idea of legalism, is there are certain restrictions that you must maintain or there are certain requirements, things that you have to do, rules or rituals or whatever, and you have to observe those restrictions and those rules and rituals if you really want to be holy or if you really want to be somebody who's spiritual then you have to maintain these things. Now, the unfortunate thing with that is legalism tends to basically lead people into a very rule-based spiritual life. And it therefore causes people to become very self-righteous in their attitudes, very condescending and critical of others, because if you don't keep the requirements I do, you're not spiritual. Or if you don't maintain the restrictions from things I restrict myself from, you must not be holy, because this is what it means to be holy. 
And so it causes this very unhealthy, self-righteous attitude and judgmental spirit. It devalues the work of Christ in its sufficiency. And it devalues the benefit of the grace of God and what it means to have a living personal relationship with the Lord. It distorts the gospel, again, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Well, it is to address and correct this destructive mindset that will kill the life of any church or any group of Christians that Paul writes. And we'll find in this letter a few themes will begin to rise to the surface. One theme for certain will be justification by faith. That is that God declares an unrighteous sinner righteous and holy by their faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Justification by faith will be a great theme. Upholding personal spiritual experience instead of religious rule keeping will be another main theme. Paul as well will express the importance about experiencing Christ's life inside of you, letting Christ live in you and live through you, rather than just trying to, if you would, put the emphasis upon keeping rules to make yourself feel spiritual. And he's going to say, look, this isn't about trying to be a Christian or follow rules so you can feel spiritual. Paul's going to say, it's about Christ in me. Christ in you, the living Christ resurrected, dwelling within you and wanting to live his life out through your life and learning how to yield to that. And so he'll talk a great deal at the end of the letter. We'll see about the ministry of the spirit working in the child of God. He'll talk about enjoying grace and freedom that it supplies to us and what it means to truly be led of the spirit. So with those things in mind, let's jump in in verse one as Paul opens up this letter to the Galatians. He says, Paul... An apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me. So as is customary to the style of ancient letters in that day, they would begin, because they were written on scrolls, with announcing who was the writer or the author of the letter. Again, makes sense. Typically, we sign our names at the end of letters, but when they used a scroll... If it was a lengthy letter or anything of substance, you would have to unroll the thing all the way out to the end to see Love John or, uh, you know, that'd be a long. So the idea was they just put the name up front. In some ways, that might not be bad for today, you know, because sometimes you might get the name and say, no, nah, I'm not going to read the rest. Uh, kind of be a helpful thing. <laughs> so they announced up front, this is who the author is. This is who is writing to you. So you could see it right away. And notice in verse one, Paul introduces himself by purposely indicating his spiritual role in his divine calling. Do you see what he says? They're looking at it in verse one. He says, Paul, first words out of his mouth, he says, and apostle. Now, the word an apostle basically means a sent one. It's a term, apostolos, which means to be sent with authority, to be an authorized representative being sent out by someone else who's in authority. So the idea is kind of like an ambassador who may be sent to go do work or to go speak on behalf of a throne or someone who's in power that they represent. So they are the authorized representative. They are sent out. They are authorized to go out and work and speak on behalf of the power and the throne that's behind them. And that's the idea spiritually, an apostle, one sent forth with authority. So just like the other 12 apostles we have in the New Testament, of course, remember Judas ultimately 
turned away from the Lord. I believe Paul the Apostle, my personal conviction, was that proper one who was called to replace the role of Judas as the authorized representative of Jesus among the 12 apostles, which means Paul had divine authority in a very unique way, like the original 12 who established the foundation of the early church. Now, this brings to question, whenever we see the word show up, apostle in the New Testament, are there apostles today? And sometimes people ask that. And obviously, you know as well as I do, there are people who claim that as titles and attachments to their name or to their ministries. So the question becomes, are there apostles today? Well, in a strict and literal sense, as in the same way there were the apostles in the New Testament that the Bible refers to, I would personally say no to that question. You are free to disagree, but what I see in the New Testament is there were certain unique criteria that the Bible stated were necessary for those who were the original apostles. Things which men today could not possibly claim because they did not experience the things that these early men did. So in a functional, or I guess you say in a literal sense, I don't believe people can legitimately claim the title apostle. I just tend to be a little leery when someone needs to claim or call themselves an apostle. But let me say in connection to that, I do believe in a functional sense that people can operate in somewhat of an apostolic type ministry. That is, being someone who has been sent forth with authority from heaven to carry out the Lord's work in ministry. Someone who has been sent out with authority from Jesus to serve and work and speak on his behalf. For example, I think missionaries somewhat function in that type of ministry. They are sent out with authority from the Lord and sent out to go and to do the Lord's work. I think those who are church planners function in an apostolic type ministry. They're sent out with authority ordained to establish churches. Those who are pioneers of different new ministry works that happen. I think they function in that way. I don't think it's necessary to claim the title, but I think the operation can still happen in some ways. And Paul makes it, however, a purposeful point to validate where his spiritual authority comes from, even as he indicates that he is an apostle. You notice what he says in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle, and then he quantifies not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So Paul says, I am an apostle, yet, he says, I want to clarify, he says, I am not an apostle from men. In other words, I don't primarily represent, Paul saying, a specific group or organization that has backed me from some fleshly perspective who's authorized me and therefore now directs me as a group of men what I can and can't do because I represent the throne of God above all else. And so Paul says, my authority doesn't come from men. And he says, nor am I apostle, look as well, he says, nor through man. In other words, what Paul's indicating there is my spiritual authority to serve in ministry is not the direct result of the fact that I fulfilled certain criteria of an educational institution and passed certain courses and got a specific amount of training. And then at the end of that, they gave me a diploma and a degree and therefore said, okay, you are now authorized and ordained to serve in ministry. 
Paul says, that's not the way that I was sent out into ministry. I'm not functioning in this way because I've become a professional minister or a professional apostle. Paul says, that's not the case. Rather, he says, my spiritual calling, notice, comes through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul's indicating very clearly he was called by God into ministry. Paul's saying it wasn't me who put myself into the ministry and took that upon myself. He says it wasn't even some institutional backing per se that gave me the ordainment and stamp of approval that has now authorized me to function in this way. He says my authority, my anointing, my authorization comes from heaven itself. I've been supernaturally called and enabled by heaven from God the Father and Jesus Christ, the heavenly Father, who the same one who powerfully raised Jesus from the dead, he says, that's who has authorized me, given me spiritual ability to function in this capacity. Again, Paul would say in other places in his writings, Ephesians 3, verse 7, he says to the church there, I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul says, that's how I became a minister. It was just a gift that God granted, and I'm just functioning. Paul would say to the uh, Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Again, Paul's saying it has nothing to do with by the grace of God, I I just am what I am. It's what God has called me to function in. 1 Timothy 1, Paul says this, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. See, Paul understood the difference between just human education, human training, human endorsement, and actual divine calling. Calling from God, a supernatural enablement, and a decision from heaven that someone would be authorized to function in some ministerial capacity. Look, the former, folks, I want to say, the former can be used. I'm not diminishing the value of training and helping people get ready. I think preparation and training and education, it has its place. But that can't subvert divine calling. It, it, it can't replace it. It can't be something that somehow can be more important or the most esteemed. The former can be used by God, but it's not sufficient alone. The latter is essential. That is something that is a divine calling that only God can do. Only God can put a man in the ministry. Only Jesus can enable someone and put them into the ministry. We can only recognize and ratify that publicly once we see it happening in someone's life. And we endorse it to encourage and to kind of put that forth as a way of something to be embraced in faith. So Paul's wanting to to address this, and he realizes that's why, instead of referring to himself as a humble servant, as he does in other letters, here he, he references his divine authority because he needs to give correction. And he wants to give the impression, look, I'm not just trying to come down on you from a human perspective. I, I'm, I'm acting on the Lord's behalf here. And so that's the reason why, not in arrogance, but to be helpful, Paul references the fact that he was indeed an apostle. And notice Paul identifies who he's addressing in verse 2. He says, I'm writing this letter to the churches in or of, excuse me, Galatia. Again, Galatia is not a city. It's a region in Asia Minor. And Paul, if you remember, went into that region. We saw it in Acts chapter 13 and 14. He went into that region of Galatia in his first missionary journey. 
And he went through different cities within that region, like Antioch and Lystra and Iconium, preaching the gospel message of salvation through Christ, planning and establishing churches in these different cities throughout the region of Galatia. Again, Galatia would kind of be like we'd say like a county today. You have multiple cities or towns in a county. Well, that's kind of what Galatia is. And Paul went into these areas. He preached the gospel. There was great spiritual fruit. People got saved. Multiple churches got established in this region there by Paul's ministry. And they started out really well. They started out very enthused about the Lord and walking in the spirit and enjoying the grace of God. But unfortunately, the influence of false teachers then started turning them aside as the time went on. Paul's going to say in chapter three of this letter, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, who's put a spell on you, the idea is, that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He'll say in chapter five, these statements, stand fast, therefore, by the liberty which Christ has made us free. Don't be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. You've become estranged, separated from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law. You've fallen from grace. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. And he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So they started rather well, but they had began to deviate. And this is the concern on Paul's heart, why he writes to these churches, plural, in the region of Galatia. Verse 3, he opens up with a typical greeting in that day. He says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, grace meaning favor or God's blessing, peace meaning rest or tranquility, that all is well. And he says, may these things come to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this is, this is what our Father and his Son want to give to you, grace and peace. And as we pointed out before, we always notice this divine order in the New Testament that you always see grace first, followed by peace second. And I don't think in any way by coincidence, as the Holy Spirit's directing the New Testament letters to be written, this is valuable because it's always a reminder to us that we must first know and first experience the grace of God if we're ever going to fully experience peace from God. Until you come into a place where you really experience the grace of God and know what that means and brings, it's difficult to begin to experience peace from God. But once you experience grace, you can be at peace in your soul because you know things are okay because of what grace means. And this morning, look, if you're lacking peace in your life, let me encourage you. If you're lacking peace in your life, the place to begin is to seek to better understand and experience grace. And if that's the case, you're in the right New Testament book because the grace of God is one of the wonderful themes in this letter. Experiencing grace is what lets us enjoy peace. Well, having just mentioned in verse 3, in his last words, the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is now led to exalt Jesus because he realizes this is one of the cures of what they're struggling with. He says of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And everyone said, 
Amen. So Paul here declares the wonderful work that the Son of God was fulfilling that was actually the plan of the Father in his heart in heaven. This is what Paul is beginning to allude to here. In order to provide deliverance for us from the penalty of sin, as well as to set us free from the power of sin controlling, he says Jesus did some wonderful things to accomplish what the Father had on his heart. He declares what Jesus accomplished was indeed, we can tell by the end of verse 4, in accordance with what was God the Father's preference, what God the Father's plan was. You see what he says at the end of verse 4 there? Look at it. He says Jesus did these things according to the will, that is the desire of the Father in heaven, according to the plan of God our Father. Now before we discuss what Jesus did in these verses, we want to notice that what happened was in accordance with his obedience to what was on the heart of the Father in heaven. And to me, this is very encouraging because the Father saw our spiritual dilemma with sin on this earth. God the Father looked down upon humanity and saw how sin was destroying humanity. And in his love and his great concern, he realized that that sin was something that was going to ruin the human race. And so in love, he devises a perfect plan to provide salvation for us to be forgiven of our sin, to be able to have relationship with God directly, to be able to have the absolute assurance that after we die, we can know that we're going to heaven. And so the father formulates this wonderful plan in his wisdom to set us free from the punishment we deserve from our sin and even to deliver and liberate us from the enslavement of the power of Satan and sin controlling our lives as people. And in his great love, despite our rebellious condition and our helpless estate, it was his idea to rescue you. It was his heart that wanted to set me free. God initiated the process. It was in accordance with God, the Father's heart. First John chapter four says, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning payment for our sins. What a wonderful thing to recognize. We're sinful, rebellious, lost in that condition. And God doesn't just disregard us and let us self-destruct or, or punish us. God devises a plan in his love to send his son to take initiative to resolve the problem for us. You know, the Bible teaches to us of God's great love that it's not God's will that any would perish but that all people would come to repentance. It says that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And how important that we always remember that is God's will for people. That it doesn't matter what condition someone is in. God's heart is that all people, each person, would come into a condition where they recognize their sinfulness and that they are going to perish in hell but that God wants to rescue them, that he wants to forgive them, that he wants to change them and reveal himself to them, and that he wants them to come to know the truth so that the truth can set them free and they can be forgiven of their guilt and they can come to know God in a personal way through Jesus and have the assurance of eternal life. Well, Jesus, our Lord, 
came forth from the Father to accomplish what God the Father wanted. That's what Paul references here for us in verse 4. He says of Jesus, first of all, that Jesus gave himself for our sins. That is, Jesus sacrificially gave his life to deal with the problem of our sin as people. Again, sin might well be defined as anything a person can say, think, or do wrong that displeases God's holy requirements. Anything we think, say, or do that dishonors God's holy requirements, that angers God, that displeases God, and that therefore merits justly God's punishment for. That's what sin is. And the Bible teaches that who sins? All. There's no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of God's standard, and all the world has become guilty. And the Bible says the wages of our sin is death, or what we deserve, the soul that sins shall surely die. So somebody had to be punished with death to atone for the issue and problem of sin. And so Jesus, it says here, verse 4, what did he do? He gave himself for our sins. That is, Jesus came to this earth being God and yet simultaneously taking a human nature to himself to be the bridge and mediator between holy God and sinful man. He lives out the sinless, perfect life that we can't live to satisfy God's requirement. And then he steps into our place and gives his life in suffering and sacrificial death as he is punished upon the cross and dies our death and experiences our punishment on our behalf to set us free that we could be pardoned and forgiven. Hebrews 9 says Jesus appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He became that sacrificial lamb that died in our stead so that God could forgive us and not punish us because Christ experienced that punishment. And now the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from all sin. That because of what Jesus did, there is nothing you have ever done, nothing you are doing, and nothing that you can even do if you fail in the future that cannot be completely cleansed, washed clean, and wiped away by God's work through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing to know that reality that we can be spared from our mistakes and the guilt that's in our life and that we can have this as a free gift a free gift of eternal life, that Jesus who gave his life died and rose again and is alive today, and now he's the Savior. And he offers the gift of God, which is eternal life, through him. We simply come and humbly receive that gift because God's offered it to us in love. Not only did Jesus give himself that we might experience forgiveness and experience eternal life, but more than that, he didn't just give himself to spare us from punishment, but also from the controlling power of sin and Satan in this world. You see what Paul says in the remainder of verse 4? He says, Jesus didn't come just to give himself for our sins, but he says he did this that we might also, he might, excuse me, deliver us from the present evil age. Jesus also did what he did to set us free from the rulership of Satan, from the controlling power of sin dominating our life like slaves. It's interesting, he says, Jesus did what he did that we may be delivered from the present evil age. That is, this present age, the Bible says, is evil. Here's what's interesting. 
in the original language, there are two different terms that are used for the word evil. One term for evil refers to just an evil, you might say, I guess, that is just passive or static. The idea is it means to be evil, and you're just content to be evil by yourself, just like a miserable, grumpy old man. or you know, just, just not bothering anybody else, but you're just content to be evil. You're going to kick the dog and just, you're just evil. And you're just content to be, just leave me alone, I just want to be evil. And, and just passive evil, just content to be evil all by itself. The second term that's used for evil in the Bible is a term that refers to of an active evil. The idea is something or someone that is evil that's not content to be evil unless it's drawing other people in to participate with it. It's an aggressive form of evil. It's an evil that's not content unless it is causing other people to join in and to be evil and to become evil just like it. That's the term that's used there. The second this present active evil age, trying to draw people into evil, coerce people into being wicked and behaving by its power dominating over. The Bible teaches due to the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve initially disobeyed God and chose to follow Satan's guidance instead, that the whole world since that day, the whole world, the Bible says, lays under the sway of, the power, the control of the wicked one. No, that's, that can't be possible. No, it is. There is an unseen force that's invisible that is swaying and directing and dominating the whole world and the whole world system, and it is demonic, the Bible says. And whether people are conscious of it or not, it's happening. In Ephesians 2, before we were saved and liberated by Jesus... The Bible says there of us that we all once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. See, there is an evil world ruler who is controlling and directing the affairs of this world and scarier, the lives of people, the souls of individuals who in a very subtle way is ruling over them like a a taskmaster using them as slaves to bring ruinous effects to their lives, to live in a manner that's outside of God's will and is self-serving and self-destructive. And the glorious thing is it says that Jesus came, verse 4, that he might deliver us from the present evil age. See, Jesus came and did what he did so that now today, from that day forward when he did that, he can continue to set people free from this present evil age. He can set them free from the rulership of Satan's self-destructive influence over their life. He can set us free from the power of sin just ruling and dominating us and us not being able to control our own sinful and self-destructive behavior. Jesus came to set people free. Whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed, said Jesus. And if you come to Jesus when you experience salvation, there's not just pardon from the punishment of your sin there is deliverance from the power of sin controlling you anymore you can have freedom to have liberty to walk in victory over things that once controlled you because jesus sets people free and then he functions to just keep us from being pulled back into being enslaved for those of us who are christians this morning it's jesus that is keeping us from being re-enslaved 
by this present evil age, routinely delivering us. So Paul briefly contemplates these spiritual realities here in verse 4, and it's almost as if as he thinks about what God the Father did in his great love and what Jesus carried out for us, you know, giving himself for our sins and delivering us from this present evil age, it's like Paul spontaneously, when he thinks about that, just motivated to worship. It only took him one verse, and he just can't help worshiping. You see what he does in verse 5? He says, to whom be glory forever and ever. And Paul gets a little excited. Amen, he says. Amen, he says. As Paul thinks about everything that God the Father graciously did and all that Jesus faithfully carried out and that we basically contribute nothing but just being sinful and making a lot of mistakes and rebelling against God. And, and all we do is just willingly believe it, that we just humbly receive what God offers to us in our condition. When Paul thinks about that, he is inclined to give glory where glory is due. He says, to whom be glory, and notice, not just now, Paul says, to whom be glory forever and ever. Paul says, I can't just say this is something that we should worship about now. This is something he says we should worship about forever and ever and ever. And Paul understood that is what's going on in eternity. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 in our Bibles give to us the scene around the throne of God and it is a scene of unceasing worship. Unceasing worship. It tells us in Revelation 4, they are saying around the throne of God, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. In chapter 5, it says they sang a new song saying, You're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Almost like you ran out of words there. And for, for all of eternity, nobody will ever get bored of doing that. Ever. You know, when we worship now, understand, we're just preparing ourselves by the eternal life of the spirit that's dwelling within us to do what we're going to do forever and ever and ever and ever as we're around the throne of God. And we are just driven to give worship and praise and glory and adoration as it becomes more and more clear who he is and all that he has done for us. Paul says, it is just amazing to whom be glory forever and ever. And considering how wonderful the spiritual gift and opportunity is, Paul, in light of that, in verse 6, says, I marvel then that you are turning away so soon, he says, from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Notice, Paul's shocked, he's astonished, but he begins the reference now in verse 6, there were those presenting a different gospel message than the true biblical gospel that Paul had presented. Now, we'll talk more about that as we go through our study together, but you can tell from Paul's words that what they were doing was they were perverting the gospel of Christ. They were distorting it, he's going to say, they were twisting it, defiling the true gospel, and Paul says, the word gospel, again, remember, in and of itself, the word gospel just means good news. And Paul says, what we told you, the gospel is good news. You are sinful. 
You're going to be eternally punished for your sin. There's nothing you can do to save yourself or clean yourself up or get right with God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. And God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And all you need to do is believe those things and that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the dead and he alone can forgive your sins and he can give you a free gift of eternal life and you don't have to earn it. Paul would say, look, you can't earn it. It's not by works of righteousness. No religious activity can solve the problem. What Jesus alone did is sufficient and we have to just humbly receive it as a gift. It's a free gift. Now that's good news. That's good news. Paul says any other gospel is a different gospel, but Paul's going to say this supposed different gospel, he says, it's it's not a gospel at all. Do you see what he goes on to say, verse 7, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ, to distort it, to twist it. Paul says this other gospel that they're presenting, and we'll talk more about this, he says it's not another gospel at all because it's not good news. It's heresy. It's destructive. It's damaging, Paul would say. It dishonors what the Father and the Son did, and it destroys the spiritual lives of people. See, these Galatian believers had experienced salvation. They had experienced the power of the gospel in their life, and therefore they had been called into a relationship, Paul says in verse 6, by the grace of Christ, So in Paul's mind, he is shocked and I think saddened that they would ever be turned away from him. That's why he's saying in verse six, man, you were called in the grace of Christ. It's almost with astonishment. He says, after all the father did and all the son accomplished and offers, he says that you, he says, verse six, I marvel are turning away so soon from him. This, I think, just mesmerized Paul. Notice what his concern is again in verse six is turning away from him. That is the Lord. Paul's great concern was deserting relationship with God to observe religious routines. Paul's deep concern was forsaking personal experience with Jesus as the top priority and pursuing just religious routines and activities as somehow more important than just a personal experience with Jesus and being led by the Spirit. Again, why? Because that's the whole reason God the Father did all he did for us. It's the whole reason Jesus came and sacrificed and accomplished everything he did for us. Why? So that we could have direct access to God. That we could have a personal experience with the Lord himself in an intimate, loving relationship. That I don't have to come through a religious routine or some institution or i don't have to confess my sins to a spiritual leader i can talk to jesus i can go directly to god and experience god directly himself in a personal way in my life first corinthians 1 9 says god is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son jesus christ and this is why paul says i marvel why would you turn away from that Why would you turn away from him, from the Lord? This just shocked Paul that people would be causing them to do this. You know, it is a great tragedy, folks, when anything or anyone causes someone to turn away from relationship with the Lord. It's an utter tragedy. 
you know, this morning, is it possible maybe that there's anything going on in your life or that has been causing you to turn away from the Lord? Is it possible that's happening in any way? Can I encourage you? More than that, can I exhort you? Don't let it happen. Don't let anything turn you away from the Lord. Don't let anyone turn you away from the Lord. You stick with Jesus. You stay with the grace of God and keep your eye on the Lord and fix your eyes on him. Nothing else is better. Nothing else is needed. Jesus offers what is necessary. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines. It's good that the heart be established by grace. Stay with grace and stay with the recipient and the one who can distribute grace, Jesus, the one who offers that to us. So Paul says, verse 8 and 9, but even, look what he says, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, verse 9, so now I say it again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, again, let him be accursed. So important is the purity of the message of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul here strongly, can you tell his language? Strongly denounces anything that would be promoted otherwise. He repeats for purposeful emphasis the same thing twice in those two statements. He repetitiously says the exact same thing to make sure it's heard. Paul says, if anyone preaches to you a different gospel than what we came and presented to you as the true gospel message, if anyone comes and does that, Paul says, may that person be accursed. The word accursed means to be given over to eternal destruction. Paul says, look, even if we, he says, if we come back here to Galatia, and we say to you, look, we've grown in our understanding of spiritual things. We kind of feel led to take the church in a new direction. And so, uh, and, and he, we start to change the message, Paul says. Paul says, if we start to do that, and we start to change the message, he says, you shouldn't just force us to resign. We should be eternally damned. Wow. That's strong. Paul says as well there, I don't care even, he says, if an angel comes with some supposed supernatural revelation. Maybe their nickname's Moroni. He says, I don't care. That's not an angel from God. That is a demon from the pit of hell with a demonic doctrine. And do not listen. He says, that demon, that person, they should be accursed. Now, again, strong language. Why is Paul being so severe? I mean, why is he being so strong? Well, the ramifications are huge. If the gospel's distorted, eternity can be missed. If the gospel's polluted, God and his son are greatly dishonored. Misguiding people spiritually, folks, honestly, is the most grievous form of destruction that exists on this planet. It is. Oh, no, no, no. People doing this, that's evil. People harming animals, that's evil. People do it, that's it. The most grievous form of evil that happens on this planet is misguiding the souls of human beings. That is the most grievous form of evil. And that's why Paul is so strong about this because they could shipwreck souls eternally 
and misguide believers into robbing them of what it means to have true relationship with Christ. Jesus himself, who's full of love, said this regarding those who misguide others in Mark 9. Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. A strong, strong thing. And Paul stands here taking his stand with loyalty with Christ and trying to preserve what matters most eternally. That's why he concludes verse 10 here by saying, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? If I still please men, Paul says, then I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. So Paul here kind of puts his stake in the sand to show an example of full devotion to Christ and indicate his primary desire is not pleasing people. He says, am I trying to prevail with God or with men? That word prevail means to win over. In essence, what Paul's saying is, am I trying to win over God's approval or win over the approval of people? Which is it? One translation renders that. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but God. If pleasing God were my, or pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. So Paul's asking a rhetorical question. He says, what should I do? Persuade people and, and earn their favor and get them to be on my side? Or he said, or should I seek to win over God's approval and have God's acceptance? And of course, Paul's indicating, you know, God's acceptance, God's approval. Paul says here, if I still seek to please men, he says, I couldn't be a good bondservant of Christ. And again, a bondservant is that willing servant who served their master, not because they had to, Remember? but out of loyalty and devotion. That's what a bondservant was. And that's the term Paul uses here, a bondservant of Christ. The bondservant was someone who said, I serve my master because I love my master. And because of who my master is, I want to be loyal to him. I revoke all my rights and I give myself fully to loyalty to this master, willingly. And Paul here indicates that he would not let anything Needing to please people, anything at all, interfere with his loyalty to Christ. Paul says, if I have to choose, I choose to stand with Jesus. I choose to be faithful to Jesus. And folks, let me ask this morning, what about us? What about us? Have we been stumbled by the temptation to please a person or have the approval of people? It's a temptation for all of us. Maybe recently you've been wrestling with that. And, and you know, making certain decisions or living a certain way due to what someone thinks. Can I encourage you today, in light of these things, can I encourage you today, make a commitment this morning to live in light of what Jesus has done for you and be fully loyal to the Lord. Fully loyal to the Lord. Live to please him above anyone else, whatever the cross. Look, I've been following Jesus now for 28 years, and I want to exhort you this morning, Live your life and make your decisions to please the Lord. You will never regret doing that.